I want to go to 1 Samuel chapter 25, but first I want to talk a little bit about David. This is the chapter about Abigail and David. And it happens to occur during a certain holiday. It was sheep shearing. And there was a holiday problem. And I'm going to read a fair amount of the, that chapter. Uh, we're going to start at, at verse 1 in 1 Samuel 25. But I want to go back <coughs> briefly to start understanding who David was. Because as we start to read, we want to know maybe some family of origin information. When we go to 1 Samuel 16, starting at verse 10, we get an idea of how David was thought of in his own family. He was the youngest. Samuel comes. God tells him to go and anoint the next king of Israel. He goes to Jesse's home. He sees his first tall, handsome son and assumes that is the one God wants to be the next king. God says, no. He goes to the next one and the next one. 1 Samuel chapter 16, starting in verse 10. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ready and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. A couple of things I want you to notice about that, some nuances. The way Jesse responds, but he's with the sheep. I mean, he's busy. Whose idea is it to get David? It's not Jesse's. He didn't say, I got one more. Should I go get him? I've got one more, but he's with the sheep. With the, he's with the sheep. And Samuel is the one who says, send and get him. What's going on here? What was life like for David in his family of origin? I just, I just want to give you sort of all the information out there. There's another uh, Psalm 68, verse 8. David is writing, uh, an alien to my mother's sons, a stranger to my brothers. In Psalm 27, verse 10, my mother and father have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Some tough problems in his childhood. Fast forward to adolescence or adulthood. We are at the scene with Goliath. David has brought some cheese and some bread to his brothers, assuming they're going to be happy to see him. But he starts asking questions about what the reward will be for the person who kills Goliath. And his older brother, Eliab, treats him essentially with contempt. Uh, the, the kind of speech he uses, if you, you've just come out to see the battle, go back to those few sheep that you have. He treats his youngest brother with contempt. 
When you cannot support your siblings, it usually means there is not a lot of security in the family. Insecure people cause insecurity. Wounded people wound other people. So this father, Jesse, perhaps wasn't the best example of a father who was giving everything he needed to his sons. Ironically, David asks what the reward is for killing Goliath. You remember? Riches, the king's daughter, and no taxes in Israel. David actually asked the question twice, if you look carefully. So he was actually very interested in this reward. We're getting some idea of his personality. Probably, like many of us, he grew up in an insecure environment, and he was looking for something to make him feel legitimate, especially if he was a child of illegitimacy. He was going to be looking for some legitimacy, and nothing gives you legitimacy like marrying the king's daughter. <laughs> he also had been anointed, so he had an idea that this, and I, my conjecture is this, that he believed this was how God was going to make him king. This was his ticket in. Uh, he, he had such bravado, such courage going after Goliath, something in his mind was telling him, this is how God's going to do it. I see his plan right now. And so many of us get caught up in the way we think God is going to do something. Oh, I see what he's doing, of course. And how many of those plans don't work out like we wanted? So David goes, uh, so he kills Goliath. Does he get the king's daughter who was promised to him? He does not. Saul gives his oldest daughter to another and then tries to use his second daughter, Michael, who loves David, but he believes that he can kill David through another way by getting David to try to win this daughter's hand by killing Philistines. So he has someone tell David that he will... He can marry the daughter, Michael, if he kills a hundred Philistines, hoping that he will die in the process. David does not. He kills 200, uh, and sure enough, Saul gives him his daughter. Now, I don't think that marriage lasted very long. I think it probably was a matter of months. Because very soon after, or during that time, Saul starts throwing spears at David. He throws two spears at him in 1 Samuel chapter 18. David's playing his harp, trying to calm Saul's nerves. Each time he escapes. And then the final time in 1 Samuel 19, verse 2, the third time Saul throws a spear, and David has to escape now, leaving Michael, or Michal, I'm not sure, I think that may be the pronunciation. <clears throat> Saul then gives this daughter, Michael, to another. He gives her to someone from the tribe of Benjamin. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. David is from the tribe of Judah. And that's going to play into our story because people were very tribal. You would have called this your own family. These are the people who are supposed to be watching out for you. Saul did not want David to be a relative. And, and think of what that felt like 
You thought this was going to be the kingdom for you. Now the king is throwing spears at you. You've, he didn't keep his promise. You killed Goliath, didn't keep his promise. Then you finally got the daughter, but now he's given her to another. So many slaps in the face. I'm just setting this up for you so you get sort of in, get into David's mind. What is going on in his mind? First Samuel 22, we have the example of Saul killing the priests. David goes to the priest to get some supplies. He gives them the showbread, some of the bread from the temple. Uh, he gives them Goliath's sword. And David takes off. Saul finds out about it, kills 85 priests. 85 of the Levites were killed. Now how does David feel about that? He has just, he actually lied to get this bread. The priests see David as a, a hero. So why wouldn't? Uh, David says he's on a mission for Saul. They assume he is, and they give him this bread, and then they all die for that. 1 Samuel 23, David now is in the Judean wilderness. Remember, he's from the tribe of Judah. There's a city called Keilah. They are being attacked by the Philistines. David goes and rescues them from the Philistines. He goes into the city. And he asked the Lord, will these people turn me into Saul? Remember, this is his own tribe now. The word of the Lord comes, they will turn you in. He leaves there, goes back out to the wilderness, maybe some caves he's living in. There's a group called the Ziphites in 1 Samuel 23, uh, verse 19. These are also from the tribe of Judah. These people from his own tribe go to Saul and say, David actually is hiding near us. Why don't you come and find him? Saul was a narcissist. Remember, we talked a bit about narcissism. People want to please Saul so they can get on his good side, even if it means turning in your own people. I'm pointing out to you how David has dealt with betrayal after betrayal in his life. God is taking away all of the things that he was thinking are going to help him. His family, Saul, his wife, uh, his, his tribe. Last part of 1 Samuel 23, Saul's army is out to get David. He's being chased by like 3,000 people from Saul's army. David has 600 men. Saul is on one side of the mountain. David is on the other side of the mountain, and they are closing in on David's army, the scriptures tell us. Just at the right time, a message comes to Saul. The Philistines have attacked. Stop attacking David and go defend Israel. So Saul is kind of this madman who is continually trying to destroy David. 
Now we get to 1 Samuel 25, verse 1, and this is where I want to start reading a bit. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. They buried him in his house at Ramah. It is very possible that Samuel was the only one who knew David's true identity up to this point, who really believed this was the next king of Israel. And now Samuel has just died. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Verse 2. There was a man in Moan, Maon, whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Now he was shearing sheep in Carmel. Now the man's name was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Calebites also from the tribe of Judah. These were his own people, so we would consider this uh, a family gathering. David heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep and sent ten young men. Go up to, he said to the young men, go up to Carmel and greet Nabal. Say, peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have, been, I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. It's a time of celebration. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David. And then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I don't know where? Essentially, he insults David. He insults his lineage. And then this thing about many servants who are breaking away from their masters. I mean, his master threw a spear at him three times. He's been totally mischaracterized by Nabal. And it would be natural after all of this picture, you see how we're painting this picture leading up to this, how David is not in a good place when this news comes back to him. David's young men turned away and came back and told him all of this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on your sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at him. 
and he railed at them. Yet the, yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. We did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both night and day, all the while we were keeping the sheep. Now therefore, know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he's such a worthless man, and no one can speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I will come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of, mount, of the mountain, behold, David and his man, men came down toward her. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned to me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more so, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. I just want to stop and point out one of the things that we talk about when we deal with people who are facing burnout. One of those things is emotional exhaustion. You feel you have nothing more to give. The second category would be called depersonalization. You see people as objects. David here is prepared to wipe out every male that this guy has because he has offended him. Where You can see David's point of view, but you can also see how David was at a point of burnout because he now didn't see these as people, other people from the tribe of Judah. He only saw the vengeance that he wanted. The third category in burnout is called loss of meaning. You could even say lack of appreciation. You Basically, you say, what's the use? What am I doing all this for? And you can all relate this to your own situations. Emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, you start treating people like objects, and loss of meaning. What's the use? Why, why, am, I, why am I putting any more effort into this? So David is at that point. He is at the point of of burnout and he's about to do something that is going to be very harmful for him in the future if he wants to be king. If you want to be king you can't have a lot of sort of these type of massacres on your record. <laughs> Not a good way for a king to ascend but he's so angry he does not see that. And this is the kind of thing that happens, right? It's a, it's a festival time Everyone is supposed to be having a good time, but people typically use holidays for their own grandstanding, especially narcissists. Love holidays. They love to, uh, because everyone is gathered around and expecting to have a good time, and they get to control the good times that people have. So this Nabal gets to say who gets his sheep and now he has 3,000 sheep. He's a very wealthy man. 
But he also gets to say, I don't want to give them to David for whatever reason. Now, it's also possible, the subtlety here is that Saul has just wiped out all of the priests. Might Nabal be concerned that if he gives food to David, that something similar might happen to him? He's not a Benjamite. Nabal is from the tribe of Judah. So he might very well be concerned that even if it's a festival time, if he gives David and his men supplies and Saul hears of it, if Saul's going to kill 85 priests, he's going to have no problems wiping out Nabal and his family. So there may be some wisdom here on the part of Nabal. So we want to be fair as we read these stories. We love to read them as who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. But just like with you and just like with me, everyone has a point of view. Everyone has a valid point of view. And if I seek to understand that point of view, I might be wiser and not take things so personally. So now we're going to see something really beautiful that God does to a man who is burned out and at the end of his rope. <clears throat> He's about to destroy this man and his whole family. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. That phrase I want you to, to note. This is power. This phrase is in this passage three times that God has prevented David from saving by his own hand. And this, I find, is powerful, that when we are angry, we are going to try to save by our own hand. We're going to try to get what we want. Instead of waiting for God, instead of praying through it, we are going to make it happen, and we are going to make sure that they know they were wrong, we are right. This is this saving by your own hand. She is obviously a godly woman, and she keeps using the name of the Lord. This is, this is remarkable. Uh, verse 27, Now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make... You know, here she's prophesying over him. Listen to these words. For the Lord will surely make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies shall, be a, shall sling out from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs 
of conscience for having shed blood without cause for my Lord or for my Lord working salvation himself. There it is again, working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. Working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who, rest who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal as much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. Wow, God sent this amazing woman to David. There's two points I want to make here, and I want to give you some time to reflect on this. Number one, is there something in your life that you could categorize as saving by your own hand? Phone calls that you're making, emails that you're sending, something where you are trying to save by your own hand and the Spirit of God may be telling you, or if we quiet ourselves right now, He may tell you, I want you to stop that and I want you to pray about it and I want you to wait and see what I will do. It's going to take longer, but I want you to wait. I don't want you to work your salvation or what you think is your salvation, in this case, it was not going to be David's salvation. It was actually going to be his downfall. Had he done this, the chances that he would have been uh, king of Israel would have been significantly diminished. God moved and tried to save him, really messing up some relationships. So I want to give you silence right now, a few moments of silence, as I love to do, just uh, to, to pray. And Holy Spirit, would you show uh, any of us now that are trying to work salvation or, or save with using our own hands, manipulate situations that, that we need to wait and let you deal with in a humble fashion. Well, as the story continues... Abigail goes home. <clears throat> Nabal is having a big party. He's drunk. She doesn't tell him until the next morning. And the next morning she tells him that David and 400 men were coming to wipe out uh, everything that he owns, including him. He, it says he turns to, uh, he became like a stone. He has some sort of a stroke. Ten days later he dies David hears of it, and he sends for Abigail to become his wife. Most of us are familiar with that part of the story, that uh, here is this woman who has this terrible husband, and if you 
pray hard enough or do something well, God will kill your current husband. And send you and send you a prince, right? And send you a prince. <clears throat> so the story unfortunately does not have such a happy ending. And I believe one of the uh, the most tragic verses in all of the scripture is in First Samuel. It's, um, it's First Samuel twenty-five. And verse, uh, verse 43. Um, verse 42, And Abigail hurried, rose, and mounted her donkey. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. This, I believe, is one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. That is tragic. I believe that is the beginning of the end for David. Why? I'll tell you why. God sends him this amazing woman. Godly woman. Incredible heart after God. Prophetic woman. Could see his destiny. Would help him. Would guide him. Would shape him. Would love him. She had been through a horrible marriage. She was going to respond to a good man. She was going to really appreciate him. And he didn't see it. Could have been any number of reasons he didn't see it. But he wanted Ahinoam of Jezreel. It said that Abigail was discerning and beautiful. Maybe Ahinoam was a little younger and a little more beautiful. Maybe it was a political alliance. That is the way that people tried to get favors from other. Maybe she was wealthier and some wealth was going to come in. I, I don't know. I believe this is the beginning of the end for David. Because very soon after that, Saul comes out again to attack David. God miraculously delivers him. But even after the deliverance, uh, David says, I am going to the Philistines. I'm no longer going to fight for Israel. I'm sick of being attacked by Saul. Probably his men were counseling him. Look, we're sick of just waiting out here until Saul attacks us again. Let's go to the Philistines for protection, Israel's enemies. This is poetic license on my point, I don't believe Abigail would have counseled him that. That was saving by his own hand. That's exactly what she told him not to do. When he went to the Philistines, the enemies of Israel, God did not tell him to go. He was going there because he was saying, God, you cannot take care of me. I cannot rely on you anymore. I'm going to go for protection from the Philistines. And he starts a life of pretending of trying to make the Philistine king think he's against Israel. Meanwhile, he's going doing all of these raids against Philistine villages, absolutely wiping them out. And, he, and one of the reasons he was unable to build the temple is because God says, you're a man of bloodshed. He was wiping out whole villages, men, women, and children, because nobody was able, was 
anyone who survives might tell the Philistine king he actually was attacking Philistine villages. So he starts living this double life under this Philistine king. And I don't believe Abigail, given her heart, given her repeated warnings about saving by his own hand, would have counseled him to do that. I just want to take a moment now. I believe that he devalued Abigail for whatever reason. Maybe because she'd been married before. Maybe she, there was someone else who looked better. I want you to think about your spouse. Is it possible that you, in some category, devalue your spouse, but that is the one that God sent to you? The two become one, and one of the chief ways that God communicates with us is through our spouse. Maybe words we don't want to hear. Maybe difficult words. But that is a primary way that God will give you guidance. If you are discounting them for any reason, as David was discounting this woman, and we don't know exactly why he was, that will, that will harm you. you. You will suffer for that. And I believe David suffered for this. He gets to Hebron a couple years later. He marries five more women. It's not long after that. He, gets the, he does get the kingdom of Israel, but then we've got this thing with Bathsheba. He starts basically his sexual addiction here. Instead of being satisfied with one amazing woman that maybe wasn't exactly what he wanted, maybe he married her out of courtesy or who knows what he did, is there anything God might speak to you through that passage? I'm going to give you a minute of silence on that. Father, I thank you for this group, and I ask that you would speak to us, that we would not devalue our spouses, that we would, no matter their past, their flaws, we would value them as someone who speaks your voice, who really cares for us. Let us see the good in them and focus on them and thank you for them. God bless every relationship in this room. In Jesus' name, amen.